don't worry, in just in case we have to share a screen, I have removed all pornography off my desktop. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Special report with Teresa Van Oy. Last episode, I asked Dr. Teresa Van Hoy from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, to go scene by scene with me through Maria Louise Bemberg's immortal story about Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz titled, I, the Worst of All. We had such a stimulating conversation, I asked her back for a couple of hours so we could discuss important topics such as racism and John Ford's The Searchers misogyny in modern day culture and being good Texans we take a deep dive into Mexican and Texas history and film so Appalachia yeah I'm, you don't hear this hick accent I always have I just don't like to <laughs> judge or presume oh, there you go yes everybody I love uh, is barefoot and pregnant from age 16 so what is it that brought you out of Appalachia? Well, we were Quakers, so we were already oddballs. And um, so we were kind of going to college when it wasn't done. And um, and so that sort of, you know, let's just call it uh, eject. Is Somebody hit an eject button and I was in college. Ejected. <laughs> yeah, ejected from my, from my beloved orchard mountainside sounds like succeeded obviously that area of the nation has a uh, a large history of of not going on to higher education would be one but there's also like a background in service a lot of the south actually the bulk of our military forces comes from you know this uh, this enormous area in the, in the south of the country i was wondering if you felt that come to you as as a professor of history, whether or not that idea of service is something that you think you inherited. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, because we're Quaker, we don't join the military. So there again, we were the oddballs. And, um, and in fact, for a while, we got killed for it. And then we got imprisoned for it. And finally, by the era of my uncle's in Vietnam, it was, um, well, in my dad in World War II, it was, and my uncles in Vietnam War, it was um, unpaid service like forest service or, uh, or orderlies at a hospital pl- taking the place of the men who had left for the front. Right. So they didn't file as conscientious objector status? They were. Yeah, they were conscientious objectors. Yeah. Didn't. Yeah, it didn't do much for your love life. Girls weren't hot for the conscience objectors, but whatever. They made it. But after the war, they f- were alive. Yes, yes. And, 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 not, and not traumatized, too. I mean, it's, it's tragic, really. I, I told my students, funny we're on this subject, because I told my students whew, in the grand finale um, on 
Tuesday. Tuesday's our last class. And I said, tell you what, I, I think I hit on the, the, the answer, the solution to end war. And, and they're tired. You know, it's a long semester. They don't, they don't want to be playing around with me in my little games. Somebody finally obligingly said, okay, so what's the answer? And I said, look, you just say to whoever wants to start a war, you just say, hey, we'll sign up right behind your daughters and sons. You know, as soon as they're on the front line, we'll fall in behind them. But if they're not there, we ain't going. And that's it. I think that would pretty much take care of it, don't you? Well, that goes back to the, uh, there's a Greek idea. I think that it's Aristophanes had the play Lysistrata. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Women, no more sex. <laughs> no more sex. I also thought that would work too, but uh, unfortunately, women's bodies are now the battleground. So nobody's asking if they want to anymore. Not in this state. Mm-mm. Or, uh, or anywhere, anywhere else pretty soon, depending on how this court case goes, which it doesn't look like it's going to go. Not looking good. Not looking no. good at all, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So activism on our part is, is going to have to be critical. Yeah. All right. So back to Ben Barrick. I'm just guessing by her name, Ben Barrick, does she have a, a German past? Is her, is her family... German by chance? I'm wondering. I'm wondering if they're German. That certainly is a very prominent name. And isn't there a town of that name also in Germany? Let me think. Member. I'm not sure. I have no idea actually. But there certainly are a lot of Germans and a lot of Jews, German Jews as well, as you know, in um, Argentina. So, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Now we know that she and her husband moved to Spain uh, during the Peron years. Mm-hmm. And is there any indication that they did this for political reasons or to avoid censorship? Again, I'm going to fail you on the history of Bemberg. Um, the thing that I that would have that would have been an interesting move. Because depending on which period of Peron, Peronismo you're looking at, it was, it would have been two different kinds of political ilk. So the first uh, version of Peronismo would have sent into exile the conservatives, the, especially the landed gentry, the folks who were um, doing beef and and grain, making making their fortunes in beef and grain because Peronismo, of course, empowered the working class and shifted the the power and the resources of Argentina from the rural estates to the to the cities and the working class. So if she left in that first period, which I don't think so, she would have been either he or she or both would have been conservative. Now, if she left in the second Peronismo phase, she would have been probably more likely to be uh, left-leaning because Peronismo by that period was starting to reveal itself to be populist and dictatorial and sort of the power of the, the great man rather than 
the power of the institutions and democracy. So when did that phase start? When did it change? That second one was in the, he was called back in the seventies, early seventies before the dictatorship. And then it was his second wife, Isabel, who sort of caved to the military. And then ultimately they took power with um, Vidal of Videla. Okay. So Peronismo is a mess because there's sort of two, there's sort of two phases, that populist post-war one and then the 70s one, which is still populist, but kind of a lot uglier. Slid into dictatorship. Yes. There's lots of different things going on that I don't particularly understand because I don't have a, a very solid worldview of Latin America, but Peron, of of course, a lot of, if you read the history books in relation to the thirties and forties, they, in the early fifties, they regard him as a fascist and they regard him as uh, someone who gave haven to a bunch of Nazis, including SS officers and camp guards, including Adolf Eichmann in an underground network that was set up by the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would they call it? The rat, rat line? What was it called? Yeah, the rat line. Yeah. And, and through Franco, through Spain. Franco got a little piece of that, that money too. Right. And I found it astounding that because I did see that she moved um, and she moved to Spain for a number of years to avoid imprisonment. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a chance to deep dive into it. But I thought, wow, you know, Francoist Spain seems to be a very strange place to run to. trying to get away from um, something bad going on in your country. But um, as we know that Franco, particularly in the fifties started opening up Spain to a variety of different interests. And as long as it was international, it was fine. But on the population itself inside Spain, he clamped down extraordinarily hard. So you have these very weird situations where Spain becomes a friend of NATO Mm-hmm. Because, of course, it is an anti-communist league. Yeah. But the Spanish people themselves um, suffer from a police state for 30 years, right? Yeah. The kids are partying in caves, uh, for example. Not even assembly or young people could get together in that, really? in that period. And yes, they, w- they would sneak off into caves, which is why after Franco finally did Spain the favor of dying. <laughs> um. They protected all the way up until 2010 or 11. So for what, 50 years, they protected students' right, uh, young people, adolescents' right to party in the plazas. They could stay up all night and it was called botellones and they could bring big bottles of alcohol and party all night long as long as they swept up and cleaned up before sunrise. Cleaned up the vomit, cleaned up the broken glass, and that went on for a long, long time just because the young people had been so badly targeted also. Um, But Bimberg, um, all I can remember now, I should have done more of my um, boning up on her, but all I can remember in terms of Camila and Yo La Peor de Todas was that she became this filmmaker in in the 60s, in her 60s, because she had been 
forced into this traditional role of mother of six, as I recall, and housewife and kind of domest, domesticity. And so her, and, and Catholicism. And so she just rebelled and produced these powerful works contesting the church, contesting domesticity, patriarchy, motherhood, the whole, the, you know, the, 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 um, the state as father and benefactor and controller of the society. So that is, that is what kind of undergirds the two films in my, uh, in my view. Interesting. And switching from Bimber Sorwana, which is obviously like a focus of her attention for a long time. Sorwana was read throughout new Spain as well as old Spain. And even in other romantic countries. And she was well known in South America as a whole, or was that just in Argentina and Mexico? Well, she is in the 1600s. So in the 1600s, really, Latin America is urban only in, uh, in, in um, Lima. And you might say it's it's urban only in Lima and in um, in uh, Mexico City for the most part. You might you might regard everything else as sort of provincial at best. So even though Gran Colombia was also um, organized at the time, most of those are provincial cities that don't have a a press, you know, the first printing press in the entire continent of the Americas, including what's today the U.S., it was in Mexico City. So Mexico City fancied itself the center of culture and education always from, you might say, the Aztecs. The Aztecs had libraries. Uh, the Nahuatl people had amazing libraries, even though they didn't have an alphabetic language. But uh, not even the Inca or the pre-Inca Andean peoples had the kinds of libraries that uh, that the Mesoamerican people had. So it was a natural, I see it as a sort of a natural legacy, even from the indigenous times, for Mexico City to pride itself on being a great center of of culture and education. And in fact, the first 12 missionaries, the first 12 Franciscans to Mexico City, and they were very self-consciously 12 because they were imagining themselves as the new 12 disciples of Christ. And they came to Mexico City in about 1524, three years after the, uh, the surrender which, by the way, this year is uh, the 500th anniversary. 2021 is the 500th anniversary of um, the fall of the Aztec Empire in, fi- in 1521. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so they came in and they were influenced by Erasmus. Erasmus of Rotterdam was um, 
was the proponent of the idea of faith through knowledge. So education was huge from the first moment of colonization and Christianization in Mexico. And so, so Juana is in some ways heiress to, to that legacy. She doesn't, in other words, just kind of emerge from the head of Zeus as a, as an oddball you know, figure, really. I mean, she's, she's got a, she's, the culture of education has been protected. Is there another figure like Sorwana in the Spanish world since her, like this Renaissance female figure? Hmm. I was brainstorming, but my capacity, particularly in Latin America, is very limited. Yeah. There were literata, there were women poets, and there were women, um, educated women, but certainly not of the renown of Sor Juana, who became known as the Decima Musa, the Tenth Muse, and and certainly not known in Europe. They would have been known in their convents, or they would have been known in their provincial capitals, often the protégés of prominent men, whether fathers or husbands or or a bishop. But no name actually is even coming to mind right now, now that you mention it, which kind of shames me because they deserve better. I could, uh, I could send that, some of that to you later, but then it won't be recorded. It would be interesting for me. Yeah, I will. There's a standard going on in history where you, know, you prevent women from being these educated forces and then uh, hundreds of years later, it, it gives rise to a misogynistic idea of, well, there have been no nothing. Yeah, there have no been women have done X, Y, or Z. It's the same thing that uh, people for hundreds of years have been saying about the Jews. Well, they're mm-hmm. conniving because they're doctors, lawyers, and money lenders. Well, that's all the Western world allowed them to be for the last millennia, right? So they couldn't uh, they couldn't own land and, and work land. Now, uh, I will throw down while we're on the subject, though, some of my favorite characters in the Indian world, female sages, if you will. So, so in pre-Inca Andean culture, there women, there were even matriarchies. There were even there were even matriarchal societies. So then the Inca came in, and they created. In general, an Andean a gender parallel system. So, the the Inca was the son of the sun god, and his um, consort was um, daughter of the moon goddess. And often it was his sister, actually. But anyway, and so then each one of them controlled lands that were required for the worship and the well being of their respective deities and then land was passed through women to to their daughters and through men to their sons. So there was sort of a gender parallelism going on. Still, it still was, it was tending to patriarchy because the Inca would decide the fate of virgin women who were tribute paid to him in tribute, for example. But then when the Spaniards come in, 
we get a race and gender hierarchy constructed. So uh, you know how that goes, white men at the top, then white women, then blah, 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 all the way. The very bottom of that, of that, uh, what you might call hierarchy is, of course, poor Indian women. Well, they rebel, actually, because it's so abrupt, this parallelism to this bottom of the hierarchy thing, which is both class, which is class, gender, and race. So they find themselves at the bottom. So they head to the high Puna, which is the highest um, inhabitable region of the Andes. And it is of no interest to the Spaniards because there's no silver up there. And it's very cold and thin, low oxygen. So they live up there and they basically create, um, recreate the Andean world, the original Andean world pre-Inca. And it becomes a runaway site for Andean peoples who've been enslaved in mercury mines or silver mines. And it becomes a real nexus of resistance so that the biggest rebellions in all of Latin America against the Spanish colonial authorities happen radiate down from the Puna. So, for example, in the 1770s, um, Tupac Amaru rebelled and almost pushed the Spanish into the sea. In fact, you know, the rap singer Tupac, uh, who was killed, bears his name. That, in other words, that's still very prestigious, Tupac. So, though we cannot point to women who rival Sor Juana in prestige and in, in literary production, let's not um, assume that there wasn't a lot of wisdom and in, in witchcraft and resistance and rebellion right. sustained by the women. Of course. In your head, there's a Rushmore, is what I like to call it, of your favorite books or your favorite films or your favorite X, Y, and Z. When it comes to Spanish language films, do you have like a three or four in your head that you go around and cocktail parties and tell everybody, or you have to see these? Or 30 or 40. Yes, I do indeed. So, um, shall I give you a couple? Please, yes. Okay, all right, okay. So, one that I regard as um, de rigueur or very powerful is uh, Old Man, and now I'm forgetting the name of it, the Chilean one with Sigourney Weaver. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's why. Oh, uh, uh, Death and the Maiden. Okay. Death and the Maiden. Yeah. Very intense. And and probably my absolute favorite on the wrenching experience in Latin America of dictatorship. And especially the, the dictatorship known as Dirty War, which, by the way, I, I belatedly learned when I was teaching at UHCL, I still didn't know this. 
So I probably taught y'all wrong. But I have since become sensitized to the fact that dirty war is an error on my part in which I'm using the language of the dictatorship itself. Dirty war, me, is, is how they justified doing what they did, the disappearances and the tortures and the, and the brutalities. So it's not a dirty war at all. It's a civil war, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a civilian resistance against dictatorship. But they called it a dirty war so that they could legitimate their dirty tactics. Anyway, Death and the Maiden. It was originally a play written by, and again, I'm going to space out on the name. Have you have you spotted it yet? The name of the playwright. Pardon. Roman Polanski was the director. The writer was yeah. Dorfman. Yep. Yeah. It was Dorfman. Dorfman. Ariel Dorfman. Rafael Iglesias. Yeah, uh, Ariel Dorfman was the playwright, and he. Um, and Sigourney Weaver was just brilliant and wrenching and compelling in that in that film. Pardon? Ben King. Oh yeah. Bing. Yep, yep. Before he was Gandhi man, he was one scary dude, let me tell you. <laughs> yes. So this takes place during the Argentinian dictatorship? Yeah, this is the Argentine. This is post, immediately post. Argentine dictatorship, and in fact, her husband is a is the newly tapped uh, prosecutor uh, charged with um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So, yeah, very very uh, powerful film. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna beg your indulgence on this one, the next one that I'll mention because. It's contrived and it's Hollywood-esque and it's it's flawed in, in many ways, but I liked also the mission. That wasn't even Spanish language. That was Jeremy Irons, remember? Oh, yes. Coolest uh, opening scene <laughs> right there with him scaling that wall. Some very trite and truisms about you know the music's soothing savage beat. i mean there's a lot of really problematic things about it but it works at the level of reminding us that the, the church was not a monolith in latin america and that the missionaries sometimes genuinely tried to stand up to the asentados or fazenderos or estate holders and comenderos to protect the indigenous peoples from, from being enslaved. Now, sometimes why? Because they want to enslave them themselves or control them, whatever. I mean, that's also possible. But they were willing sometimes to die for to protect the indigenous. And that is a useful corrective when we think we've got it all, you know, good and evil too nicely and and patly defined. Of course, Romero is powerful for Central America. Romero, as you recall, is the is the story of Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was killed in El Salvador for um, resisting 
the dictatorship. So I like that one. That's Raul that tends Julia, to be... if I remember correctly. Yep, Raul Julia was in that one. One of his last and... films, I think, 1989, 1988. Yep, perhaps one of his last ones. He was he was older then. Obviously, if you're still on, if you're on a Raul Julia kick, uh, Kiss the Spider Woman. Yes, is really great, and that one gets you into sexual politics, also, which is was very deftly handled there as well. Um, no, I just have so many that I'm so excited about. Oh, we can talk about Raul Julia all day long. I'm more <laughs> fan of his. He did an amazing TV movie uh, for HBO, I think it was about 1986, that nobody saw, and it was called Florida Straight. I'll look for it. No, good luck if you ever find it. I haven't seen it in 20, 25 years. Oh, I saw it was on VHS, but... It was uh, he was a, a Cuban exile. Uh, Fidel had kicked him out with the criminals. Yeah, and he had come to um, Florida and had hired a boat. And uh, this is about 1980, 81. Yeah, he, he wanted to to go back to find a treasure uh, that he had hidden as a soldier in uh, Batista's military. Ah, so they're returning to go get this treasure, which apparently was bars of gold or a suitcase full of cash or. Or whatever, nice. but there was Classic. underneath it all was this parable of of uh, what Batista had represented and what Castro had cleansed away, and then what Castro had become, and then what it meant for this exile to go to this capitalist country to return to grab this money, and then of course bringing these Americans along with it who didn't understand anything that was going on. Really, you know, it was one of the bars, right? And Julia was just. Perfect at it. And of course, everyone, Florida Straits. Florida Straits, yeah. And of course, everyone remembers okay. him as, um, you know, the Adams family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I forgot about that one. Well, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. The Searchers. Yes, The Searchers. Did you make your way through that piece? I did. Oh, wow. And, and I liked <laughs> it quite a bit. But what I want to know is why do you like it so much? Oh, man. Now, see, I didn't even bother to prepare that question. I have to confess that I am the only radical feminist I know who absolutely loves westerns. Classic Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. And, in fact, the dial tone, the special dial tone that I, bring tone that I bought for my sons and my husband is the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, that, it's just, it just runs deep. And I just think that they're in a world of too much talk, too much color, too much movement, too frenzied. We, I'm starved for silence and vast spaces. And strip down color schemes and the elemental and raw. What can be said when you're not saying a thing? And Angel Eyes and Clint Eastwood and um, the guy who pays it and fail. The ugly one. What's his name? 
that fantastic actor. Eli Wallach. Yeah. So much can be said without saying a word. And I, I need to be regularly reminded of that. Now, in terms of John Wayne and in terms of the search, so that's spaghetti westerns. Obviously, a searcher's is John Ford. And, and so I love it less. Let me just be clear about that. This is my, this is not the Westerns that I love best. And yet, John Ford gets us as close as any American director does to what Sergio Leone accomplishes, to that austerity, to that what do you do when you're really close to death? Who are you when you must face death every day, all day long? And that, for me, is a a very compelling question. Now, as for the searchers itself, will you? Shall I go through the whole thing there? Sure, I have part of it. Nothing yeah. to do all day than okay. listen to your take on the searchers. <laughs> so, all right. So, let me just confess that I had that what you what I delivered to you was a piece that was written over a period of two years, I think it was. So, the first piece was a nasty diatribe. I was just rip snorting mad. And I wrote that thing outraged at John Ford. And but I'm I'm seasoned enough and old enough that when I write or say something out of rage, I already know I'm wrong. I already know I'm missing something because it's too neat. If I'm on a big tear and and somebody is all wrong and I'm all right, then I know I'm wrong. So I just have to wait. <laughs> I have to wait and calm down and cool down so that I can figure out, okay, where am I wrong? Because historically, no one's perfectly right no one's perfectly wrong so i just have to i have to i have to wait and see it and kind of open up and dig for it so what was so where was john ford wrong on that thing why was i mad well he used those five women as foils as as tropes We got the the virtuous crone, the old woman, the wise crone figure. We have the mother figure. We have the two virgins, two white virgins, maidens, you might call them in the old Roman trilogy of crone, mother, and virgin or maiden right and then we have the indigenous maiden the indian maiden the one they call look 
And it just seemed to me that he used them for his, for the machinery of his plot, for the machinery of his film. And and so both of the maidens, for example, were dumb. One one looked smart, but in the end, she just waited for the wrong guy and was hot-headed. The other one was hot-headed and also kind of mattered because she was betrothed to somebody interesting, more or less interesting. At least he purported to be manly and interesting. Um, the mother figure, in the end, I felt that she was sort of subservient as a a figure of domesticity and civilization in the wilderness, um, but with her little secret. She couldn't be too perfect, so he made her out to, you know, be kind of hankering for her husband's brother. Unrequited and suppressed love of some kind. And then and then that crone figure. So in the end I was I was just kind of peeved. Um, but then I realized later after, maybe a couple of years later, I turned, I came back to it. So I put it on a shelf and forgot about it. And then I came back to it to figure out if I had understood something now. And, and the, the niggling question for me was, well, dang it. Why did this film not win the awards, not win the big awards that Ford and, and Wayne had always won. Ford and Wayne had always won his big awards. But boy, something was the matter with the searchers. They did not win the big Academy Awards. So I, I, I said, well, what's going on? And then I realized, wait a minute. John Ford, and I guess you might say John Wayne as well, took a big risk on this one. They actually made the lead male the macho cowboy wild western figure sort of villainous they made him out to be you know like giving his his niece a, a, a coin uh, you know a, a coin that turned green on her neck they made him out to kind of like be having some kind of little tiny affair thing with his brother's wife they made him out like, uh, well, where were you? I didn't see you at the surrender. They made him out like, like wanting to kill his own niece. Sort of obsessed, like a, a deranged wolf. Wanted to kill his own niece because it was better that she was dead rather than to grow up as an Indian, right? Exactly. Or, or, or be sexually, uh, sexually active and the lover of an Indian too. I mean, you know, the, the fact that, okay, if he's touched you and defiled you, you're worthless in our community. Right. So absolutely. 
oh yeah, so I, so I forgot to speak about that figure too. I mean, the obvious big female figure is um, is is Debbie the niece. But then, so you saw that he had to infantilize. I was I, that was probably the part that made me the maddest actually about the female figures is that. Only when he re-infantilized Debbie and lift her name was Debbie, right? Am I getting that name right? Was Debbie, yeah. Okay. So only when he re-infantilized her, when he picked up her full-grown bride of a of um of an Indian body and held her aloft, as he had in the very first scene when she was five or eight, he held her aloft like a, a loving uncle when she was virginal and wonderful. Only once he reenacted that same gesture did he say, okay, I can't kill you anymore. Now you're saved. I saved you because I re-virginalized you. I rehabilitated you. And so then he deposits her back in across the threshold, almost like a, a husband in traditional marriages, he, he deposits her inside that threshold of proper domesticity where she belongs. But then, so that was all it irking me a lot, but then he can't stay. He has, he has to leave. He does not belong. He is not accepted as a hero or a proper, a proper member of the community. And so I thought that that was, in the end, pretty bold on the part of of John Ford and, and even John Wayne. So, so that's why I came around to, okay, they tired me out on their gender stuff, but they were still trying to do something that dared go against the macho, heroic, Wild West mythos. And, and of course, it has become John Ford's greatest work in now. Now it's regarded as his greatest work, I think, as, as best I understand. I think that's true. Um, the AFI, the American Film Institute, they nominate films to go into the Library of Congress for culturally important films. And the Library of Congress has a board to to debate this. And, of course, I, I think the first year they did it was 1990 or 1995. And, of course, you know, it was Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane, Vertigo. But, you know, after a while it was, uh, well, what about the searchers? And nobody wanted to touch it in the late 90s until the Navajo Nation spoke up. And they said, we want that film in the Library of Congress. We want that film recognized as, as the way white people treated us. And it's it's a good thing they did. And there's there's a whole lot of checkboxes, therefore, that you have to go through the production company, which I can't remember who it was at the time. It wasn't Warner Brothers for sure. But, you know, they had to uh, they had to create a copy of the searchers, which was uh, digitized and preserved. And they had to give a a film version of that that was clean and so forth. So you could stand the rest of history. If you look at the, the 1957 Academy Awards for films made in 1956. I have to say that I'm I'm quite disappointed. I'm not convinced by any of these except for one, uh, Around the World in 80 Days uh, by Mike Todd, who is famously Elizabeth Taylor's husband at the time. Uh, nobody nobody knows that movie now. Friendly Persuasion by William Wyler. Eh, I mean, if you're in film school, Giant, which is way past its prime, 
and has aged very badly now. Yeah. Seemingly a movie about um, a big oil, the wildcatter from Houston, actually, um, McCarthy. And then The King and I, which, of course, was a force in of itself. It's still I got on stage with Neil Brenner. And then, of course, The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille, which was really the only one that I thought that should have been in contention, maybe with The King and I. But the idea that The Searchers is not mentioned on this list, that it was never nominated, is shocking to me. And, of course, the directors, that's just the long list of everyone who who uh, was nominated for, for Best Picture. Wayne is not nominated for Best Actor. Of course, it's Yul Brenner, James Dean, Kirk Douglas, Rock Hudson, Laurence Olivier. Uh, Best Actress, to no one's shock and surprise, Ingrid Bergman, Catherine Hepburn, Deborah Kerr. These these people had been, uh, been nominated for, for 10 years. Ford really, uh, it took a long time for him. And I think I could be wrong about this, but Peter Bogdanovich, also a, a director who started out as a film historian, he wrote a retrospective on John Ford in the mid, mid 1960s. And that's really the first time people started to turn their heads back and say, well, yeah, what is the modern West? Yeah. Without a uh, stagecoach. Yeah. You know? Well, I did want to say one more thing about, you reminded me there, uh, when you said that Navajo Nation said, hey, we want that in there, you know, that was perhaps the boldest thing about the searchers for me was that you remember I was saying that John Ford had dared sort of discredit the John Wayne figure. Well, man, the other thing he did was make the Indian chief, the evil Indian chief with the with the, the scalps hanging from the bar and everything. Scar. The scar, the mirror of John Wayne. You know, they were the same guy. They even had the same blue eyes. I mean, he, John Ford dared say, hey, guess what? We've seen the enemy and it's us. We are that which we hate. And I think that that was just too bold for the 50s. They just could not handle us saying, you know what? You don't like Scar. You don't like. Well, guess what? That's exactly who we are. Killing indiscriminately and, you know, and, and taking people's bodies, taking women's bodies, which is what they did kind of with look, even though they mocked her and belittled her. In the end, it was sort of a, a usurpation also of their body. So... So that, that I thought was, you know, those dudes deserve credit for that, I think. Well, and yes, and there are, like a lot of things, there's, there's nuance. And it's very hard to teach nuance. It's very hard for people to understand nuance. You know, I think the scream is very unfair uh, when the, the natives come onto the, the ranch in the beginning of the film. And that the girl, the daughter, just screams like she loses her mind. And the men get really defensive. They turn to her and say, yeah, we all know that we're about to die. You don't have to scream about it. You know, they really infantilize her, to use your word in your paper. I, I thought that was crazy. If I was in that situation, I'd be screaming my head off, too, before I buried my head in the sand and waited for it to be scalped. You know, I wouldn't know what to do in that situation. I'd be crying like a little girl. That's perfectly fine. I think that's a good reaction. The, ma- the macho thing is t- 
toxic in there. And, you know, and that's the other thing is that John Ford even messes with that. He, he says, all right, well, who's, who's the cool sage among the men? It's actually Mose, which of course is, is Moses. Oh, nice. And Mose, what does he want to do? He wants to rock in a chair. He doesn't want to fight anybody and kill anybody. He wants to rock in that chair, but he's the one who knows everything. He knows all about the Indian culture. He know he has all the answers, and yet he's the one who's not playing the macho leader. So John Ford actually makes the wise man the least heroic, the least attractive. The same thing with the father, the the Jerlson, whatever his name is, um, father there. I've forgotten the the Scandinavian name of that. That father who's married to the crone, I forgot. You know, the the one who's is a little bit dim dimwitted. Yeah, I don't remember if that was Harry Carey Jr. who played uh Brad Jorgensen. Jorgensen, yeah. Mm-hmm. The the father figure. He's also just dimwitted. He you know, so a lot of the men are made out to look not heroic in this film. And also the preacher who kind of leads the expedition, he knows he wears a top hat. So they're, they're, they're trying to, I think Ford was trying to poke fun at a lot of the male figures in our patriarchy who generally get a lot of credit, like the good farmer, the good preacher, you know, I think he takes pot shots at a lot of them and it's pretty bold for the fifties. I mean, this is the McCarthy era, era after all. So I ended up thinking, all right, dudes, y'all did all right on that one. Yeah, we should we should say going back to to nuance. I mean, John Ford, he was absolutely for our listeners. There is a book that you can buy and read called Five Came Back. There's a documentary on Netflix. I recommend you skip and read the book first because it's in way more detail. And it's about the five Hollywood directors who actually went off to to serve in the Signal Corps to document the war. John Ford was one of those guys. Uh, he came back absolutely traumatized, a raging alcoholic. It took years for him to get back into the business to uh, keep a, a, a tap on his uh, uh, disease in order to, to keep shooting and get back into the game, as it were, with She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Um, John Ford is also the same guy who was called in front of the Directors Guild of America uh, by its president, Cecil B. DeMille, and said, OK, uh, we're going to start kicking out these communists. And this is this is during the McCarthy hearings, and this is during you know stars like uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall went to Congress as uh, representatives of the the committee for the First Amendment to try to save these people's lives, and they were going to kick them out of the DGA. And John Ford raised his hand in this meeting uh, that Cecil DeMille was 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 championing. This is right after I mean he's in the middle of uh, doing the Ten Commandments, and and John Ford says, "I'm Jack Ford." And I do Westerns. That's how I identified himself to everybody. And he said, uh, he said, Cecil, I've known you for 30 years. And this is crap. And I'm not voting for it. And we're not voting these people out of the DGA. And, and, and if, if we do, I'm walking out of here. And it was that, it was that strength 
That was Jack Ford versus Cecil B. DeMille. Who are you going to back in this situation? And there was a lot of people that were like, you know, I don't like communists, but Cecil Bill DeMille is 80 and Jack Ford is, you know, in his late 40s. And I, people chose to side with the guy who was going to be the, the next uh, moneymaker in Hollywood the next 30 years. It was that much power. Now, in the end, how much did that affect the blacklist? Well, some directors got stayed in the guild. They still couldn't make movies because as part of the irony of the situation, the blacklist was managed by an organization that was led and chaired by John Wayne. So I didn't know that. So though John Ford was trying to save these people's jobs, his buddy, John Wayne, was trying to get them out of Hollywood. It's a very strange dichotomy that's going on here. And if you ever get a chance, the only thing that I've ever seen that dramatizes this to any type of degree, uh, which is watchable, is a film that was made about five years ago called Trumbo, which, of course, is about Dalton Trumbo and stars Brian Cranston. Uh, okay, Trumbo. I got that. I want to I definitely look at that. And I can't remember who plays John Wayne, but there's, there's a great uh, portrayal of Edward G. Robinson in that film, which is quite funny. Um, okay. The other fact that I wanted to bring up about is the ending of the film was cited by John Milius. John Milius is a famous screenwriter. He wrote Apocalypse Now. He wrote the sequel to uh, uh, Dirty Harry, which was called The Enforcer, if I remember correctly. He is known as a far right-wing wacko nut who runs around Hollywood with a loaded 45 and, and people were, were not very surprised to know that he was an enormous fan of the searchers. And well, of course, John Milius would like the searchers. He wrote and directed Conan the barbarian and red Dawn. So that fits right in. And I saw him on an interview and John Milius was talking about how the idea of the searchers as a, as a racist uh, allegory is actually incorrect because John Wayne saves the girl's life at the end, whom I believe is Natalie Wood. Yeah, it is. And <clears throat> so in, in Milius's mind, yes, this is a racist film until the finale. And I don't know. I'm very conflicted about that. Like, I like the film. There are some definite problems with it. But in the end... Wayne can't, Ethan Edwards is his character's name, he can't bring himself to do this uh, because of these issues that you pre pretty much outlined us before. And I don't know if I can, every time I watch The Searchers, I like it, but I have a problem sitting through the first uh, hour and 30 minutes just so I can enjoy this 10-minute payoff at the end. Now, how do we get around that as filmgoers? I don't, I don't know if there's an answer. Well, first of all, let me start by contesting Milnius's um, contention. Mil Milius or Milius? M-I-L-I-U-S. Milius, okay. Let me contest his contention that it's racist until the end. No, I think it's racist all the way through. Unmitigated. And the reason that her redemption in Ethan's eyes is not is not is still racist is that he just rewhitens her by reinfantilizing her he rewhitens her so he's not saving he's not 
embracing a, a, the wife of an Indian chief. He's not embracing a woman who's produced Indian half-breed children, if to use the nasty term of the day. He is embracing somebody whom he's turned back into eight years old, virginal and white. That's whom he's embracing and that's whom he's saving. Uh, he just does a head game on himself and, and on her to re-baptize her as virginal. The thing is racist all the way through. Absolutely. I can't find a moment where it's uh, where there's any redemption on that score. Um, <clears throat> so why are we watching it? What, what is the merit here? And I will accept anybody who says, no, it's racist and I can't handle it. The only, the only uh, virtue is as the Navajo, uh, the Diné people, to use their preferred term, say, well, we want people to watch it because we want you to see how bad it was. We, we, we don't want anyone to forget. It's sort of like keeping Auschwitz, Jews kept Auschwitz from being torn down because they wanted people to know the truth. But I still think that to the extent that we can say that John Ford dared critique iconic male heroes, dared critique the iconic myth of the American West, dared introduce this crazy wolf, this crazy um, deranged human being into into that scenario as the all-American male and and, and Civil War hero, the unsurrendered. Because you remember the unsurrendered were were in the South, the, the, the heroes. Right. So if he's unsurrendered, then he is the embodiment, Ethan is the embodiment of the Southern Confederate hero. Now, if that Southern Confederate hero is then a raging lunatic who kind of cheats on his brother and kind of gives his um, his only beloved nieces crappy stuff that, you know, you know, giving crappy jewelry or trading crappy goods is what we accused Indians of. So he becomes an Indian also in that way. The Indian that we hate, he becomes that figure. So over and over again, John Ford presents Ethan as, on the one hand, the iconic male, American male, red-blooded hero male, and on the other hand, a truly despicable character in, in, in every way. Non-Christian, you know, he, he shuts down the prayer. Um, lusting after his brother's wife, trading crappy goods, um, wanting to kill his own kin, and all of this stuff. So, you know, that takes courage in the 50s. It does. And I'm glad that you brought up this 
very briefly the the idea of this Confederate hero, which is more and more disgusting as we move forward through the 21st century. Last summer, I took my family to Monument Valley, and we stayed in on the Navajo Nation, this wonderful hotel that's on the, the edge that overlooks the valley. My son was really looking forward to it. He's fans of all those films. And on the back, but there, I think there were there were three other people in the hotel. You know, there was nobody. Yeah, COVID. Uh, exactly. Uh, there, there were a lot of people in the RV park that was across the highway. Tons of those people, but not in not in the hotel. And on the back porch, overlooking the valley, on this enormous wall right outside the the cafeteria, which was of course closed, uh, they would show Monument Valley movies every night. And the first night we were there, that was Stagecoach. And the second night we were there, she wore a yellow ribbon, which I watched the, for the first time and was horrified to find that there was among the cast this this Confederate soldier who was buried with honors in the middle of this uh, fight with the, the Apaches. I don't know how we're going to get away with this. Uh, I mean, get away from, from this. Uh, the Magnificent Seven was remade about five years ago with Denzel Washington in the Yule Brenner role. And I went to go see it because I'm a huge Denzel fan. I think the man is outstanding. It might be one of the best actor that we've had the past 25 years. And Ethan Hawke uh, played his sidekick, and Ethan Hawke is playing a former Confederate officer. Throughout the entire, I don't believe that this is in the original Magnificent Seven with um, uh, with Steve McQueen and Yul Brenner. And I know for a fact it's not in Seven Samurai, but with Toshiro Mifuno and directed by Akira Kurosawa. When are we going to get away from this idea that Confederates have any place in our lives? I mean, I'm from the South. You're from the South. These people were traitors. These people rose against their country. The idea that we have to have an argument about uh, whether or not to take down a statue of a Confederate general is absurd. I, I, I can only think of one. Maybe if he thought long about it. James Longstreet, who who was uh, in command of armies under Lee, uh, after the war, repudiated everything, took the oath, worked for Grant, and and worked to establish a new Union order. So as a effect, uh, an effect of that, uh, no one in the South that he used to work with or for would talk to him again. Have to anything to do with him? Yeah. No. no, it's a. <clears throat> Now you're on my topic, man, because that's uh, that's my latest research. My last ten years have been devoted to this very question. Um, <clears throat> so if you Google me, you'll find that there was an op-ed piece that I got asked back back in 2015 when the the taking down, the, you know, the Confederate flag thing was first before the monuments came down. It was the Confederate flag issue in 2015. So there's a big op-ed piece that I wrote exposing. Uh, the Confederates uh, targeting also Mexican-Americans, not not blacks only, but also Mexican-Americans. You know, I got a death threat for that one, a handwritten one turned up in my in my office. And uh, and then some old Confederate here in town. Um, tried to convince the paper to publish what he called a rebuttal. And up to that point, <clears throat> I had welcomed all, all criticism. And I, you know, it's like, hey, I, I love that people care. I don't, you don't have to be on my side. You don't have to think like I do. Let's, let's have a discussion. There's nothing I love better than that. Um, but this guy 
actually accused me of not having sources. And so now I was mad. So I called the newspaper back up. I said, okay, now you've got to let me publish my rebuttal to his ersatz rebuttal. It wasn't a, you know, he had no leg to stand on. So I'm actually citing pages, you know, you should know Rip Ford's memoirs. Here it is. You know, here's the page number. It's digitized. There's no way you should not know what Rip Ford said here on this score. And so uh, they did print it. And, and then so then, of course, when the Confederate monument um, issue kicked up, I was one of the main figures in San Antonio that got the, the statue down in, in San Antonio. So I'm standing out there with a news, you know, the newscasters call on professors to speak because we're the only ones not going to lose our jobs, not going to have our stores boycotted. So we can speak the truth with impunity in a way that people who depend on a job review or who depend on customer base, they don't have that latitude like we do. So we have to be bold because we're in a privileged, protected position by tenure. So, yeah, I, I've lived a few fiery times. Roberto regularly is terrified that the KKK is going to end up on the yard here. Um, but so far, we haven't been killed. Don't scare me. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's crazy out there. And uh and, and my read on this Confederacy thing, first of all, let me tell you, Dylan, um, if you look at the first inaugural speech of Abraham Lincoln, March 4th, 1861, he is referring to San Antonio in that speech because the KGC, have you ever heard of those cats, the Knights of the Golden Circle? Yes, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So they, a bunch of those dudes, cruised into San Antonio, which, by the way, had the biggest arsenal in the entire United States of America, the biggest military U.S. Federal Army arsenal and depot was in San Antonio. It wasn't in the East Coast. It was, they had come down here on the grounds uh, to protect the new border because that's what the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had um, required of the U.S., and I mean the annexation and all of that, and the and the treaty, as as uh, Texans had interpreted it. So the biggest arsenal is here. These these cats roll into town on February fifteenth, force the surrender of the U.S. Army. This is not even any kind of official Texas force. This is just Knights of the Golden Circle, and uh, and they just surround the Alamo on the second story of all rooftops of all the buildings around the around the Alamo, forces surrender. Robert E. Lee rolls in that afternoon, February 18th or whatever day the surrender comes down. And he said, has it already come to this? And they demand, they said, come on, join us. He said, no. And he refuses to join the, those Airsots Confederates. They have done, they have staged this hostile takeover one week before the referendum even happened. They had promised that nothing would happen without consulting the Texan people which was February 23rd. Well, this is February 15th, and they've already attacked because they're terrified that people won't support their cause. <clears throat> so they marched the soldiers up three miles to what's today San Pedro Park, 
the townspeople of San Antonio are following them, begging them, where are you going? Please come back. You can't leave us in their hands. Nobody wanted, San Antonio did not vote for the Confederacy. So I'm saying, why are we going to have this statue if the people of San Antonio did not vote for the Confederacy? The Confederacy is in every single state a hostile takeover. It's not even the state's will, except maybe South Carolina or Mississippi or places where um, black residents outnumbered demographically white residents. But in Virginia, there was a huge Whig movement. There was a huge opposition to the Confederacy. Half of the, or I'm sorry, 25% of the state of Virginia left the state of Virginia yeah. because they wanted to stay in the Union. We call that West Virginia. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so we have to understand that the Confederacy was basically a hostile takeover every time. And we already know in Missouri, it went back and forth maybe 20 times. And finally, the Confederates established, the Confederate Missourians established their Confederate capital in Marshall, Texas, which was, by the way, the home of the Grand Dragon or whatever his name was of the KGC in Texas, uh, El- Elkana Greer. So, so, so what people have now, the problem is, in my analysis, is that people don't think of the Confederacy as what it was then, which nobody was bragging about after the war. What they think of it is what it is now in this glamorous lost cause, our people died for states' rights and freedom, blah, 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 kind of discourse. But anyway, we're off. We're off on something else, I guess. I just wanted to... To say, as as a proud Texan, uh, the governor of Texas was Sam Houston, who was deemed too close to the Native Americans for comfort and was absolutely against secession, thought it was illegal, did not spend his life trying to get Texas into the Union only to see it leave, uh, absolutely refused to go along with it. And the Texas legislature impeached Houston and kicked him out of office. So... He stood in San Antonio and argued against it for three hours. Wow. Three hours stay in the union. And, and of course, you're absolutely right about his Indian policy. And the first thing that, that Lamar did after Mirabeau Lamar, after he took office, was to declare exterminating war, host the council fight, uh, what they call a council fight, but it was a Comanche mass a massacre of Comanche chiefs and then rolled into New Mexico trying to get trying to take all the land to California and New Mexico basically handed that expedition its butt on a platter so and he reversed all of Houston's uh, ordinances on protecting the natives mm-hmm. reversed the idea of reservations which Houston had set up and was trying to enforce which is hard to do when you've got a legislature that's not working your way so before yeah. we jump to the next uh topic i want to go back to leone sergio leone Mm -hmm. and i are such big fans once upon a time in the west oh yeah uh, which is a work that i go back and forth on every time i watch it like this is good but is it as a narrative is it entertaining like you're hard pressed to find anything on film that leone makes that's interesting but does it work as a story where I am captured every the last time I saw it, I've seen this movie about four or five times. Last time I saw it, because it was on Netflix, I watched it with my son. Claudia Cardinale starts off the film as this wandering woman who effectively has been purchased 
as a wife for someone that she's never met is going to inherit this town. And she's pushed this way and pushed that way. And in the end, she's the one who winds up with everything, the train station, the town, and pretty much every man in the town at her beck and call. Through Wait a minute. Super- Wait a minute. Is that Once Upon a Time in the West or is that um is that Sweetwater? I mean uh Once Upon a Time in the West where Henry Ford is the not Henry Ford, Jesus. Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda was the plays against type as the villain. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. He's trying to stop her. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So this is the one where um where Henry Fonda was working for no, that's uh, that's three fifteen to Yuma. Yeah, well, no, it's the Henry Fonda's in that one too. Uh, yeah, the original three fifteen, the three ten to Yuma. Yeah, three ten to Yuma. Yeah, Henry yeah. Fonda's yeah. Okay. a railroad boss who he later. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, wow. Whoops, I got all confused. All right. Yeah, there's tons of westerns out there. People, yeah, <laughs> and I took a class at in, in my master's program where we talked about the myth of the American West. And I read a book, which I, I think I still have, but it, it escapes me now. In the 1950s, it was something like five out of all ten radio programs was a Western. And seven out of every ten TV programs was a Western. And something like uh, 30% of all films made in Hollywood were Westerns. And this went on from like the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. It wasn't until the 60s. When, because probably of Vietnam and because of uh, seeing the war on TV every night for two hours, people started questioning these ideas of colonialism and imperialism Gunslinging and, yeah. and things like that. And, and unfortunately, as popular as Leone and Clint Eastwood were, they were largely working against the popularization of the Westerns. Mm-hmm. And by the 70s, you've you've got McCabe and Mrs. Miller, for example, by Robert Altman, which completely deconstructs the Western and just says this this stuff is just not good. Just worshiping this this era of our history is not healthy. Not healthy. Okay, so staying in the West, I would say the Southwest. How did American investment in Mexico's railroads affect the Mexican people? Oh wow. Boy, so you're back to my old crazy first book, I guess. <laughs> you know, you know, I wrote that book, right? I can find it on Amazon. There you go. Don't don't bother. That was a book only a mother could love. Um. <clears throat> well, so so because I wrote the social history of Mexico's railroads is in my dissertation, and then pub that was the the first thing I published, uh, I actually flew against the, the dogma at the time, which at the time was embodied by um, John, John Coatsworth of the D- David Rockefeller Center for Latin American History in Harvard. So here's his pipsqueak grad student in UT who's saying, well, actually, dog, I don't think you're right about that, man. So he was so amused that he sort of took me under his wing and and I think finally grudgingly conceded that I was right. In any case, he wrote a letter for my my tenure case at, at Houston. So, okay, yes, you're right. The U.S. invested enormously in four major trunk lines 
going, connecting the border to Mexico City. And yes, it was largely a disaster for peasants and workers in that even though Mexico prospered during the Porfiriato by all standard measures, right, GDP and, um, and, and, and all the big macroeconomic um, measures, the people got poorer and the exploitation got worse. And the land displacement was terrible. And the, yes, Mexico industrialized, but at the expense of the people and the workers. So um, so that was the standard narrative. <clears throat> so then I started looking at the railroads in that didn't link to the Mex that, that weren't U.S. capital. So I, I started looking at the, at the railroads in southern Mexico and discovered to my surprise and to Coatesworth's surprise and to all the big, the guy, all the big folks that something else was possible with ro- railroad development. And that is that because railroads were so vulnerable, to sabotage, right? You've got your capital investment stretched out across 400 miles of, in, in the case of the railroads I was looking at, the zona mortifera, the, the mor- mortiferous zone, the, 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 the malarial belt of Mexico in the Yucatan and, and in the, um, in the Tehuantepec. If you don't play right with the people, your railroad's blown up every night. Your bridge is torn down, burned down. Your your rails are holding up somebody's roof. So in other words, ironically, since it's impossible to protect every square foot, I mean, every linear foot of railroad track in rural Mexico, the railroads set the standard for judicious, fair, legal conduct and support of the well-being of the little podunk villages and hamlets through which they passed. And for example, Dylan has a hundred square meters of land. I want it to build my railroad. They set up a system where it's not that I say, hey, I'm giving you this, take it or leave it. If not, I'm expropriating you. They set up a system where you would get an independent judge to value your, your land. We, we would have two individual, we would name two judges. You name one, I name one, and then they would negotiate a common price where, we, where everybody was satisfied. So, because I knew that if I made you mad, you'd destroy my railroad. And as long as I kept you on my side, you would sell your goods. You would you would take the train with your family to get to the Virgin of Guadalupe on on twelfth of December. In other words, we we could make each other happy. We could make each other wealthy and prosperous. And so that's how it that's how it went. And it was it was kind of a nice a nice island of fairness in the rapacious Porfiriato with mines and 
industry and all those other problems. It sort of reminded me in the end of, um, you know, once you really look down in, into who's selling firewood to the fire burning engines and who's, um, you know, who's laying the track and who's doing all the on the ground pieces of it, which is what a social history required. It reminded me of John Ford, uh, of um, Henry Ford. Nobody would accuse Henry Ford of being a nice guy. Nobody would accuse Henry Ford of having any, you know, beneficence toward workers or the poor. But one day he looked around and he said, well, you know what? I've, I've saturated my market. I can't sell cars to anybody else. Everybody who can afford a car has got one. So now I'm going to have to find a way to extend my market by making working class people able to afford a car, which means I need to do a couple of things. One of them is pay them well. So overnight he starts paying, I think it was $5 a day, not because he's a nice guy, but because he needs a market for his cars. And so I think that when capitalism realizes that everybody benefits by fair trade, if you will, then then there's actually something we can do together. Interesting. That's Yeah, that's the story of the railroads in Mexico anyway. And for our listeners, what is the Porfiriato? Porfiriato is the period under Porfirio Diaz, who is the dictator who was overthrown by the Mexican Revolution. He ruled basically since 1876. But <clears throat> Mexico has so badly vilified him for obvious reasons, admittedly. But also they, they tried to lionize the revolutionaries that they forget that Porfirio Diaz was also the hero against the French invasion of Mexico in the 1860s. So I kind of have to stick up for him a little bit on that because, because I don't like when history gets prostituted to tell one story or the other or erect some kind of hegemonic um, narrative. I'm very glad that you did this very convenient segue. I just recently read a book on Napoleon III. Ah, there's the dude himself, yeah. I think it was written within the last five years, or at least it was published in the last five years. And, of course, I was expecting to read a completely different book where uh, effectively the the author's argument was like, yes, he was an emperor, but – he did some astounding things for France in the 25 years that he was running France that were probably most likely not capable under a Republican government at the time. And Interesting. I think a lot of people look at uh, Diaz in that same sort of same light, right? So how is the American Civil War and the French intervention in Mexico linked? Please explain that to me. Ah, oh, wow. Oh, hot dog. That's my favorite stuff. Okay, so, <clears throat> well, the Confederates, crudely, because, of course, I could talk way too long on this one, crudely, the Confederates sided with the imperialists. They sided with your buddy, um, Napoleon III and Maximilian. And the Union sided with Juarez. At least Lincoln agreed to... Uh, neutrality and to support Juarez. 
Now, that story alone is already interesting because Lincoln was still president-elect, still out in Springfield, Illinois, when Mexico's foreign minister, Matias Romero, takes a train out from Washington, D.C. to freeze his butt in Illinois to make a case to get President Lincoln on the side of Juarez in, in Mexico. Because it's 1861, of course, February of 1861. And all hell's breaking loose in, in Mexico in terms of the intervention brewing. In fact, all three have landed. Britain, France, and Spain have all landed and are making loud and threatening noises. Eventually, as you know, Spain and England go back home, but France uh, remains largely because of a figure named Saligny, S-A-L-I-G-N-Y. Saligny, this is 1861, that dude's been kicking around in Mexico in the borderlands since 1830s. He was in Texas in the 1830s, 30 years almost earlier. He was some kind of funky special envoy from France during the Airsoft's Texas Republic. Now, obviously, he's not an official envoy because France did not officially recognize Texas as a republic. But he's kicking around. And if you are paying close attention to early Texas Republic, you will find that there is a Franco-Texian bill. Franco-Texian bill crafted by then-Governor Sam Houston and this Saligny to give France 20 million acres of Texas in exchange for building 20 forts and a huge bunch of immigration and a huge bunch of money to kind of nail down the western frontier of Texas and protect Texas from uh, indigenous attacks. So Saligny has basically been kicking around trying to get, trying to get um, Mexico for France for thirty years, and he triumphs as Napoleon III's envoy in 1861. Finally, tried to get it in the 30s with Houston. It didn't pass the Texas Congress. He, he's still trying. He's still trying. He's in there with Jacker in the 50s, still failing. Finally, he triumphs in 61. All right. So the Confederates love Saligny. Confederates are, you know, he's an old Texas player of them trying to get Mexico. Confederates thought they were going to get Mexico, actually. <laughs> That's crazy. They were all over Sonora in particular. They thought it was going to be the new California, the new gold rush. The Confederates couldn't get Northern Virginia. (laughs) Well, you know, Confederates, uh, oh, what's his name? Forgotten, dang it, his name for the moment. But he went down and made himself, he joined the cabinet of, of Maximilian. What was his name? He was a big maritime figure out of Virginia. <sighs> anyway, he he became he joined the cabinet and became minister of immigration, 
and he started setting up Confederate colonies, con- colonies for ex-Confederates in Mexico in 1865. Yeah. And a whole bunch of them went down there, governors and prominent people. And in fact, when they picked up uh, the president of the Confederacy running, they caught him. He was on, on his way to Mexico. Jefferson Davis? Yeah, they snagged him, dressed as they, they claim as a woman, although I don't know, and, and and taking a bunch of the Confederate treasury with him. He was bound for Mexico and, and joining the imperialists. So he was on the rat line. Mm, uh, yeah, the, the, the before, 100 years before. Also, um, <clears throat> Shelby, Joe Shelby out of Missouri – and a bunch of Texans went down there as the unsurrendered. They are the original unsurrendered. They apocryphally buried their flags and their pennants and their um, and their Confederate memorabilia in the Rio Grande as they continued on and to use Mexico as a base to rebuild the Confederate cause. That ever been discovered? Have they found it? The flags? Yes. <laughs> I wish. No, I guess uh, the river dragged them away. All right. Tell me about the Tejano defenders of the Rio Grande. Okay. So that's our people. Um, that's our Mexican-Americans. They're self-styled hijos de la frontera, sons of the borderlands who ended up trying to help both sides. They tried to help the Union side on on the north side of the river, on in the U.S. side, and they tried to help Juarez on the south side of the river, on Mexico's side, which basically means that in 65, for example, before the surrender, they've got two fierce enemies because the imperialists have taken all the way all of Tamaulipas, and the Confederates are still strong in Texas in early 65. In fact, that's why they're unsurrendered. So these guys are actually with nowhere to go. There's no caves. There's no mountains. You can't, it's not like you can have a guerrilla warfare in the sagebrush. So they die. They suffer. It's crazy what they go through. And yet they win. They win on both sides. They help the Union and they help. Juarez, and Juarez is all the way up, belly up against um, El Paso. That's why they call that city Juarez, because that was his last bastion. If he crossed out of Mexico and, and, and made it and, and went into the United States, the Juarista cause, the, the cause of the Republic would fail, and Maximilian and the imperialists would have won. So he's belly up against the river and just about to hang a left and head west into the desert and disappear rather than cross the river. And it is the, the Tejano defenders of the Rio Grande and the borderlands that actually turn that thing around. Everybody says, no, no, no. Mexican, the Mexican Republic won because the French withdrew. That's not true. The French and the imperialists were, Absolutely spectacularly strong in Tamaulipas. They weren't going anywhere. In fact, they just built an opera house. They were doing great. The, the Confederates were coming in, bringing them money. They were doing 
weapons, they were just doing great. And it was the Tejano defenders of the Rio Grande that recaptured Matamoros, which was at that time the biggest source of income for Juarez. Because that's the lifeline of the Confederacy, if you remember. All the the southern goods are going out through Matamoros and all the all the goods required by the Confederacy are coming in through Matamoros. It's the only open port because Lincoln's blockaded everything else. So Matamoros is bringing in enormous customs duties. And if the Tejano defenders of the Rio Grande can control Matamoros, they can get the money to Juarez to sustain the cause against the imperialists. And they do. They win it back. This, this is, I'm very interested in this topic. In, in 2004, uh, there's another somewhat related situation. Disney poured an enormous amount of money. I think it was like $120 million into a movie called The Alamo, which did very poorly at the box office. Dennis Quaid, famously from Houston, from Waltrip High School in Houston, famously played Sam Houston. And but however, it does portray Juan Seguin and Lorenzo de Valles, uh in full character. And those two, without those two Hispanic heroes in the Texas Republic Army, there would have been no victory at San Jacinto. There would have been no uh, no army, um, Wellington esque as it was, uh, with withdrawing under the leadership of of our future alcoholic president of the Republic. <laughs> and the most that I can see is a town in Texas named after Seguin and a, a freeway interchange after Zavala. I mean, really, we as Texans can do better than this, surely. We surely can. Well, to our credit, we did make him vice president briefly of the new republic, Zavala. But uh, your point is valid. In fact, it's worse. Um, Seguin loses everything and flees into Mexico, the very country that he helped defeat. He flees for sanctuary when when the guerrilla warfare and genocide starts in the Nueces Strip and and, and, and Texans are attacking Mexican-Americans post-revolution. And, and in fact, Seguin is – get a load of this – talking about the defen- Tejano defenders of Mexico and the, and the Mexican cause who never get squat for credit. Juan Seguin was in – Cinco de Mayo. He was in the Battle of Puebla in Cinco de Mayo, all the way down from the border to Puebla, which is a long way. So, so I don't want to die without Mexico, the nation of Mexico, recognizing what they owe to fronterizos, to the sons of the borderlands in terms of, and daughters, of course. Um, in terms of suffering, dying, and defending Mexico. Okay, are you ready for the next question? We're going to be done yeah. soon, I promise. I know we're no, because I just talk too much. We're never going to be done. Go. What did you do for the Holocaust Memorial Museum? Okay, so um, the reason I'm hesitating is that it. I was just thinking about Auschwitz quite powerfully. Uh, I wrote something about when I took my kids for Christmas Eve to Auschwitz. So for a moment, I got distracted and went that way. Um, that was the Christmas after I, when I, before I got cancer with you guys down there in Houston. Um, okay, for the Holocaust Memorial Museum. 
those guys had a great project. That's the one in the U in, in Washington, DC. They had a great project where they were asking the question, okay, so the U S said that it didn't know U S people say, well, we didn't know about the Holocaust. We didn't know what was happening. So we're off the hook for not having done anything. And so the U.S. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington wants to test that claim. And so one of the ways they tested it was to take a, was to ask colleges and high schools all over the United States of America, ask professors and teachers to go to their local libraries or consult their the databases of their local newspapers for 1938, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, and see if anybody knew, see if it cropped up in the local newspapers. Well, my students found within minutes that a database we have, in fact, it's a, it's a project by UH. It's called, um, Recovering something, Reco recovery project or something. It's 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 uh, a digitalization of every Hispanic, uh, every every Spanish language newspaper in the United States of America, and it's ongoing. It's been going on for well over a decade. It's huge now. It goes from eighteen thirteen maybe to nineteen eighty two. I think is the span. <clears throat> Recovery, recovery project or something. And the database is called HAN, Hispanic American Newspapers. And I recommend everybody buy it for their universities. And so my university had it. And so my students hopped on and they put campo de concentración as a search term or campo de, de you know, they started looking. It was mentioned everywhere in the San Antonio, La Prensa, in the San Antonio papers. They knew about it absolutely. So, of course, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum was thrilled with this finding. So they supported us on some other things that we were trying to do. So we're sort of a scratching of backs a little bit. The thing that my students and I tried to do, and in fact, I want to tell you, we had a big breakthrough last week. For four years since January 13, 2018, my students and I have worked to seek recognition, official recognition of German-American and German-Latin American internment during World War II in the United States. Japanese-American internment was recognized by Reagan in 80. Italian-American internment was recognized by Clinton in 92. Nobody's recognized German-American and German-Latin-American internment. And Germans suffered like hell in World War I, in Civil War, World War I, World War II. And my students, so you got a, my students are mostly predominantly Latino, Latina. So you got a bunch of Mexican American kids defending white old people 
in fact, white old conservatives, these German-Americans who were interned as children, Dylan, they were interned at the age of three. They were born unfree in America. They're now, the youngest ones are 77. The oldest ones are 92. And all they've got in the entire United States of America is my Mexican-American kids fighting for them like crazy every semester. Well, we just got Joaquin Castro, our representative, to draft a bill recognizing German-American and German-Latin-American internment. In other words, kids from Latin America, born in Costa Rica, born in Ecuador, were put on U.S. Army boats. These were not under any kind of agreement, so they they could have been blown out of the water brought up to New Orleans, processed as illegal immigrants. That was the grounds for holding them in detention and put in Crystal City Camp, Kennedy Camp Kennedy in Texas, I mean in Kennedy, Texas, and in, uh, in um, Segoville in Dallas, all over the United States. And the whole program was a body exchange. We needed bodies to exchange with Hitler to get Americans free. Oh, that's what this was all about. Dude, I am not kidding you. They, these, I have a, I have a, I found my, my student found, I have a black high school student who went with me to the national archives in, in, in Maryland, pouring through these ship manifests, trying to find the ship that left February 15th, 18, no, no, 1944, and we found it, 1,116 passengers with their ages, with where they were born. They were born in Brooklyn, for Pete's sake. Wow. They, you know, and they're on that boat, and they're sent. Now, this, Essilcine, that was a mercy ship. Everybody cleared the the, the passage across the route and, and nobody was supposed to bomb it. But when they got to Germany, it was a different story. Americans, American kids are bombing them during the day and British are bombing them during the night. By then the British were tired of dying and they left the American raids. They, let, they left the daytime raids to the Americans, but they're in Hamburg being bombed. These kids are born in Brooklyn and here comes an American plane and they're diving in a ditch. It's the craziest story nobody knows. And they are now 76, 86. Their parents have died in shame of having enemy alien status. And they are waiting for peace. And I think my kids are going to get them for them. Isn't that beautiful? It is. But that's a crazy story. Crazy story. There's lots of things about American history that make you shake your head and say, I cannot believe that happened in this country, which is supposed to be the freest country on the planet. Yeah. Well, I have to say, because we're judicious in our business, I have to say that Roosevelt and Biddle, Francis Biddle, the Secretary of State, thought that they were protecting German-Americans because they said, because they knew what happened in World War One, people just rounded them up and tarred and feathered them, killed them, hanged them for treason for no reason. 
And so by passing 9066, the executive order 9066, they said, well, look, we've got it. Y'all don't have to, y'all don't have to kill them. We're investigating. Leave it to us. FBI, we're on it. And so most of German Americans did not suffer as badly as they had in World War One. In fact, some of them even got handouts, you know, got, you know, some support during World War II for poverty or something. But some of them, and in fact, it's thousands, caught bloody hell. And they're still in pain. And, and what's important to my students also is that <clears throat> if we know that the trauma of being in Crystal City Camp lasts a lifetime, then what is going to be the fate of the kids who are detained on the border right now mm. in, these, in these places? Because at Crystal City, they had, a, they had a swimming pool. They had schools. They, in fact, the schools were so much better that one of my girls got out. She went. She was registered in the camp at age eight. It was her birthday. When she got released, it, she was 10. She went back to Chicago where she was born. She was ahead of everybody in math because the schools had been so good. They had been taught by German parents. The schools were so good. Those camps had such – Crystal City Camp had such fair treatment that the Mexican-American kids in Crystal City would hang on the fence wishing they were interned. The kids outside the fence had worse food, worse medical care, worse education, yet their fathers and brothers were being – sent to Europe and to the Pacific theater to die for their country. Whereas the enemy aliens on the inside of the fence were watching films and going swimming and eating great. Thanks to the Geneva convention. Yeah. Well, there was, there was a prisoner of war camp in Arizona and I can't remember where it was. It was out in the middle of nowhere and it was SS officers only. Mm -hmm. It was a a hotbed of rabid Nazi ideology Mm -hmm. and they were, they were there basically contained as a virus. There was one road and one, one rail station and that was it. Interesting. I haven't heard about that. I'm going to look that one up. There was, I remember hearing about a POW camp in, in the borderlands somewhere where those dudes are all playing, all playing soccer. They're having a blast. They're done. They're going to be fine. Whereas right across the fence are the Mexican-Americans who are training to go die. Right. Isn't that crazy? Go, you know, kill your, kill your family. We're going to be right back. We're going to go kill your family and probably die while we're at it because y'all going to kill us back. It was, you know, think of that dynamic. Wow. Oh, the great standard of the, the army going into the Japanese internment camps in California and recruiting for a battalion that would go to Italy and be one of the highest decorated battalions that served in the European front, 444. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and all Japanese Americans. Uh, yeah. There's lots of, uh, or the Native Americans who who served in the U.S. Army for a uh, hundred years after they were considered non-citizens. Mm-hmm. Right, and they were, yeah, and then they were. It was not only the what we call Navajo, the Dene people, but it's also the Comanches, code talkers. Nobody, 
talks about them because Comanches, we, we're so invested in this notion of Comanches as the ultimate evil that we don't even bother to realize, no, they saved our butts in, in, in World War II also. And then, of course, the irony is that they always had a keeper who was supposed to kill them if they got caught. Right, right. So, yeah, we love you. Thanks so much. Don't get caught because we'll kill you. So it's a very dicey position there, of course. There's tons of Ira Hayes, you know, the Pima Indian who helped plant the flag at Iwo Jima and actually survived the war, right? Most of those guys who planted that flag died in that battle. Okay. I work for Jaguar Books. Pitch me your next project. (laughs) My next project, well, I mean, the next thing to publish is, of course, this fronterizo Tejano thing. But, all right, you want me to tell you, just between you and me and a few hundred of your finest fans, my dream project, um, Dylan, will probably never happen because I'm getting old. But I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I could do, it would be to contest the cultural um, contempt for dark and black and the cultural exaltation of white and light so if you if you look at the last 2000 years <clears throat> of western history good good is always light and white and pure and evil is always dark and um, black. Every time. Hey, I want to tell you about my darkest hour. Well, you know that's not going to be a happy time. In other words, we just very casually internalize this idea that dark is evil and light and white is good. And I find that to be contributing to social and racial injustice and hierarchy. So I would just like to say, I would just like to mobilize 5,000 years of research and a bunch of non, I mean, not not 5,000 years of research, but 5,000 years of history and non-Western traditions in which black is beautiful, black is good. Darkness is beautiful and darkness is good. For example, all life begins in darkness. The seed sprouts in darkness. The fetus grows in darkness. Even if you go back 5,000 years, the, the day began at sundown. That's why Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown because all beginnings are in darkness. So what would change about our mental, our, our paradigms, our mental constructs, our responses, our default positions, if we suddenly realized that darkness is beautiful? And the more I think about it, like, you know, what hurts your eyes more? Too much light or too much darkness? You know, too much light is dangerous and painful. So what if we just 
stop with the false dichotomies. Stop with the false hierarchies. And embrace it all. Love it all. How am I doing? Am I going to get that book? Sold. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, if I never do it, at least Dylan will know that I, you you can say that at my funeral. Dog, she should have lasted a couple more years. We could have used that book. All right. Tying it all back to cinema. Um, How do you think we're doing in this country and including more Latin American voices, more Spanish speakers. Are we getting better? Are we just trucking along at the same rate? Are we getting worse? I remember there was a Latin American explosion about 20 years ago. Everybody was talking about Ricky Martin and Jennifer Lopez. And then it just seemed to go away. You know what I think may be happening, and I'm not the one to ask because Unfortunately, I spend so much time, you know, I'm better on folks who are dead than folks who are living. You know what I'm saying? You're asking the wrong chick. I'm not fabulous as a cultural theorist because I'm just so fascinated by the past and I'm going back further and further, as you can tell. But I think that the big blockbuster stage of our development the the dominance of the big studios is long gone thank god and that we're now on scrappy low budget productions and crazy distribution that approaches something like egalitarian reach and and in those offbeat, off-Broadway, if you will, opportunities, we're going to find amazing, amazing voices. And we are, we are finding amazing voices. And I'll just throw out the little thing about, you know, that film that I did with Ellen Brodsky, The 25 Texans in the Land of Lincoln. Just a little shout out. Did you hear about that little piece? Oh. No, okay, so you gotta gotta dig back in there. So if you look up 25 Texans in the Land of Lincoln, it's by New Day Films, director Ellen Brodsky, starring my 25 kids, my 25 students, actually starring 125 students because the project went on so dang many semesters that there's even Saudi Arabians who were defending Santa Ana in there. Um, and we went up in a 2000 mile one weekend long bus ride. We left on a, we left on the 28th of October, 2016. I don't know if that was a Thursday or Friday. I think it was Friday morning for dawn. Drove straight a thousand miles. And that's considering with a bus breakdown, Dallas. Got there at one or two in the morning to Springfield, Illinois. I had the kids up. By 7 o'clock breakfast, by 8 o'clock they were in the archives in Springfield, Illinois. That afternoon they were erecting an ofrenda to Abraham Lincoln on the steps of the courthouse, the Illinois courthouse, thanking him 
for his lifelong support of Mexican-Americans, acknowledging the huge price he had paid for that support. Do you know that as a freshman senator from Illinois in 47, he was the one stood up and discredited the Mexican-American war in December. They just, he just seat, they seated him in December. First thing he did is raise his hand, stand up, blast poke, did it again in January. Then he supported Juarez 15 years later. And Mexican-Americans, when he died, there was such an outpouring in those Spanish-language newspapers calling him the great hero of the Americas. And so we, we, we read one of those tributes in Spanish with half the kids translating. Half of them re- using those epithets in Spanish and intoning them, and the other half translating for the Illinois crowd. I dang near burst into tears. That night, we went to a UIS, University of Illinois at Springfield, hung with those students, had a big conversation about all this history. How come Lincoln, in the entire brand new award-winning museum, presidential museum, or not one mention of Mexico or his stance on the, on the Mexican-American War, not one mention of the spot resolutions, not in the gift shop anywhere. We looked everywhere. Then the next morning, we went to the Illinois Military Museum. No, next morning, we went to his tomb and paid homage. Then we went to the Military Museum and asked to see Santa Ana's leg because Illinois had captured it, played baseball with it on the field, uh, on the battlefield where people were dying. The president's leg, they had played baseball, used it as a bat to humiliate Mexico. Then... We were pretty badly mistreated by the military museum officials when we asked them to repatriate the leg to Mexico, which, by the way, Illinois had already tried to do twice in the 40s and had been um, turned down in the legislature. We got on that bus. We had some tacos, got on the bus, drove all the way back, got in at around 5 in the morning. That became a film which won seven awards all over the United States of America and screened in Oaxaca, screened in Monterrey, gained one award in Oaxaca as well. And so if you ask me how we doing on Hispanic voices, I just have to say my kids are beautiful. That film was five years ago. And uh, last year during Hispanic Heritage Month, we get stats on who sees the film, who downloads it on Canopy. Guess, guess which institution watched it more than any other in the United States of America? Oh, I don't know. I, who? Harvard. Harvard. <laughs> can you believe, can you believe my, my, my cutie pies in St. Mary's University, Podunk School, dirt poor school in San Antonio, Texas, five years later are teaching, you know, the best and brightest in America about this history. So I'm just feeling pretty, pretty chuffed, pretty, pretty confident that, that we're turning it around. Just watch out. I remember being a, a child. I, I was in elementary and there was a movement to, to trade Santa Ana's peg leg uh, for the 1824 flag, which is actually the flag that flew over the Alamo 
which obviously Santa Ana's army took uh, back with them to Mexico because they had conquered it. And it was in a museum somewhere in Mexico City. I don't remember where. Museo, Museo de las Intervenciones. Yeah. M museum of the Interventions. Yeah. Actually, the, the flag that, that Santana most treasured was the one of the New Orleans Grays. He said, see, I told you, this, this whole Texas thing is a maneuver by the U.S. to get our land. And it was. Oh, of course. If you read uh, the, the New American Library, of course, they've, they've published uh, Grant's memoirs and um, Sheridan's memoirs and Sherman. I want him to come to Sherman. All those guys who fought in the Mexican War. Uh, on who would later on become union officers, the great majority of them, they all said the same thing. This is a shameless land grab. Wicked war. We have yeah. no business doing this or being in this, and this is just bad, and it's going to come back and bite us, and it did. Yeah. It absolutely did. It provoked the war. Yeah, civil war. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then the whole thing is, yeah, and, and that little 33-minute film is – it's got plenty of that stuff too. Uh, I'll just tell you, I'll, I'll end for your peeps with uh, this little anecdote, my favorite little anecdote about um, the Mexican-American War and how hideous it was. My students researched the military regulation, vigente of, how you say vigente, the code of, of military conduct required in the Mexican-American War. We were very clear looking into that because we wanted to know if it was even legal to take the leg, which by the way it wasn't. And one of the things we found was that no, you can't you can't um you can't confiscate anything. You can't loot, pillage. The only thing you can confiscate are military insignia or um pennants or banners or flags. You can't take anything else, not a pocket watch, not a Bible, not gold tooth, nothing. One of the the, the the uh, Mexican combatants most the, – the, the contingent of Mexican combatants most brutally killed were American – former American soldiers who had – you may have heard of these fellas, the San Patricio Battalion, the Irish and German Americans who defected to the Mexican cause because they were Catholic and they knew the cause was – the American cause was wrong. This horse said, why are we with these Protestants killing Catholics if the Protestants are wrong? So they changed over. Well, anyway – Taylor, I mean, not Taylor, but um, what's the name of the commander that came in through Veracruz? Scott. Winfield Scott. Scott. Thank you. Scott was brutal with these dudes because they were brilliantly effective soldiers, of course, handling the artillery and all that. So he was brutal with them. And then they were hastily buried. They were, they were court, you know, they were hanged and a bunch of brutal stuff, branded, a bunch of stuff. And uh, and so then P.T. Barnum rolls in. P.T. I mean P.T. Barnum publishes an ad in the in the American newspaper because they were publishing an American newspaper in the occupation. And he says, "Okay, so I'll pay for any artifacts y'all fellas collect." So these guys go, bunch of them go dig up the San Patricios, who you know were shallowly buried still, some of them with the rope around their necks and boil the meat off their skulls and sell it to Barnum. <laughs> just, just so you can say, dudes, what's going on with our people, man? It's like, it's just a theater of the absurd. I think also war would end if people realized just what a theater of the absurd it can become. It's just 
just so, you know, all you have to do is study a tiny bit of history and you lose your appetite for war. Teresa Van Hoy, thank you so much for coming on the Super 70 podcast. Thank you. I can't wait to hear what you come up with, Dylan. And thanks so much for the, for the privilege and honor of joining you. Teresa Van Hoy teaches history at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, just a few miles away from the Alamo. Look in my notes for links to her book and Ellen Brodsky's film, 25 Texans in the Land of Lincoln, in which Teresa takes a part. If you need to reach me, you can email me at thatdellandavis at gmail.com. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdellandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis, and I'm saying to you, adios. Adios.